All right. How you guys doing? You guys excited to get into the Word today? I know that I am. I'm, uh, it's been, you know, I took two weeks off, Gabe and I did, uh, to go on vacation. I was here last week, but it seems like it just takes forever to get back in the groove. But man, I miss, I miss teaching when I don't get the chance to do it. Uh, Pastor Craig and, and uh, Pastor Jack were, were so gracious in teaching for me to give me the, the break, but I just love being up here. And I I can't because I get exhausted and tired, and so thankfully we have other people uh, who want to teach, but man, I I just miss you guys, and I miss being able to share my excitement over the word of the things that the Lord has shared with me and shown me, and I think today is no different. He he has shown me some things that I'm really just excited and anxious to to let you guys uh, share with me. So... A uh, special shout-out to our visitors. I see some faces I haven't seen in a while. I see some faces that I'm not sure I recognize. But um, if you're new here, again, special, just a thank you. Thanks for coming and joining us here today. It's, it's important to us that you feel comfortable. And if you have any questions, anything that you want to know more about or anything, that you connect with us. We'll be out in the foyer after service. You can connect with us. Gabe and I will be out there or any of our staff. Uh, we want to make sure that you that you feel comfortable here. So it's important. So let's get going. Hey, our, um, our last series, to catch some of the visitors up to date, uh, our last series was about spiritual warfare. We spent quite a bit of time talking about that. In fact, the Bible really largely front to back is about spiritual warfare. If you looked at it through that lens, you'd pretty much be accurate the whole way through. Um, and we know that Jesus won the war for us. We know that. Scripture tells us prophetically Jesus won the war, although the battles are still going on daily, every single day. We can read Scripture that says Jesus won the war for us, Jesus triumphed, Jesus conquered all, and we know that, but yet our everyday doesn't always feel like that. Our everyday and moment-to-moment feels like, man, I am getting beat up. If Jesus won this all for me, why am I still getting beat up? It's because those battles rage on. We know the war is won because of this prophetic vision that was given to the Apostle John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. And, and it's a thorough, detailed vision of the consummation of God's kingdom. And most people see this as a scary book. In fact, most people that I talk to are like, yeah, I haven't spent much time in there, and frankly, I don't necessarily want to. A lot of churches don't teach on it. The reason for that is because the perception is that the book, it's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But the, the perception is that it's about judgment. It's about damnation. It's about lakes of fire. It's about pale horse of death. It's about, it's about all these scary things. Most importantly, God's wrath. And there is an element of that to it, but that's not what the book is about. The book is a book of hope. And we should see it as a book of hope. We should see it as a book that lets us know that the war has been won. That lets us know that we have an all-powerful, sovereign, gracious, merciful God. But he's also a just God. And so there is going to be an element of judgment in here. And that has to be. In order for us to trust in God's mercy, we also have to trust that he is a just God. And so when we look at at the flow of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, 
There is a flow to the thoughts. It's not a whole bunch of just disjointed concepts. And we can't separate what happens in this book from Jesus Christ. It's not a fortune-telling book. It's not a book that just foresees the future and how cool is it that they can see into the future. If you see it just as that, you're going to miss the point of the whole thing. It is called the revelation of Jesus Christ for a reason because he is and has always been the focal point of this book. So we can't separate the two. We need to make sure that we see it through that right lens. And I think as we go through, hopefully you'll be along with me and you'll be able to see that. So uh, I read this every time. And the reason I read this scripture, this is going all the way back to Revelation 1.3. And I'll read it here in a second. But the reason I do... For those of you who haven't been here recently, this is the only book in the entire Bible that explicitly says in writing that you will be blessed by hearing and reading. Those who read, those who hear shall be blessed. And so on that note, I'm going to make sure that you hear every single word in the book of Revelation. If you're here or if you listen to our podcasts to catch up, if you missed any messages, go back and check out our podcast online. You can get through the website or go straight to Google Play or iTunes and do that. If you do nothing more than do that, Scripture says you'll be blessed. Now, how many want that? How many want to be blessed? Most of us. Some of us are like, eh, I could take it or leave it. But for those of you, you're going to be blessed if you just listen to this. Now, it also does say you need to heed the things. Listen to this. Blessed, this is Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is the words, this is the words saying you need to not only hear it, but you need to live it. Heed makes, take it to heart, let it change you, let it change your, your perception of your place in this world. Maybe it changes your perception of who God is. It should change how you live your life if you're heeding these words. And then it punctuates it by saying, the time is near. That doesn't mean tomorrow, next week, those people who like to predict when the end is coming, we don't know that. But we do know that the time is near, and it places an urgency on these words. And as we open up the chapter, we see Jesus relaying that urgency to the churches. So before we get into this, I just want to take a second and, and pray for that revelation that will help us to heed it, help us to live it and let us change, let us be changed. So Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for your blessing that you offer to us simply by hearing your words and letting them live in our hearts. So, Father, we open our hearts to you, and we just ask for that new revelation that's going to show us, um, show us your heart for us. We want to know you better and your plans, your purposes for us. We want to know our place in the kingdom. So, Father, we just we give you permission to come into our hearts and change us. Let us be changed forever by you, and by your word. So, Lord, we lift this message and this day up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so when we go into this, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, when we go into this book, the first three chapters deal with Jesus Christ and the seven churches. Okay, so we've taught about that, and he is exhorting them. He is encouraging them. In some cases, 
He's rebuking them. But he's also challenging them, saying, you can do better. The phrase keeps coming into my mind, saying, you're better than that. And I think that's essentially what Jesus is saying to these churches, like, okay, you're good at some things, some things not so good at, but you're better than that. And I want to exhort all of us with that, how we live our lives. It's not like I'm pointing a finger at all of you saying, hey, you're all, you're all sinners. We are. We know that. The Word says that. But we can live our lives better. No matter how good we are, we can always take it to the next level. And I think that's the challenge that Jesus is giving these seven churches especially. So the past, present, and future churches are all being challenged by Jesus in those chapters. But then, then he switches gears. So the first three chapters are basically the scene for those chapters is here on earth. But then chapters 4 and 5, we switch now. The scene becomes in heaven. And Pastor Jack taught a couple weeks ago, chapter 4, he did a great job of that, describing the throne room. Think about this scene, okay? The Apostle John is taken in the Spirit to the throne room of God. And he is seeing, he is seeing God that looks to him like precious stones, like jasper, like rubies, and he's just radiating this glory. He sees 24 elders surrounding the throne, all in their white robes and all in their crowns, and they are worshiping. He sees multitudes of angels surrounding the throne and worshiping God. He sees a rainbow surrounding the throne. And I love that imagery because here on earth, we know that the rainbow was a symbol of a covenant that God made to to, uh, Noah that he wouldn't destroy the earth again. But we only see a half of a rainbow, and I like this image that surrounding the throne is a full rainbow. So what we see as a half rainbow is a connection to what happens in the rest of the, of the realm of God. I love that imagery in my head anyway. We see angels. We see thunder and lightning. We see worshiping. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's quite a scene going on there. And that's chapter 4. Then we switch. This week, we stay in the presence of the throne, but we start getting into some of the, some of the um, hints of things that are to come in the following chapters. So Revelation chapter 5, I'm going to read this to you in its entirety, and then we'll come back and we'll start digging into the individual verses. So this happens to be out of the New American Standard Version. You can follow along in your translation uh, if you like. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Now, these are no longer the words of Jesus as they were in 1, 2, and 3. These have switched where this is what the Apostle John himself is seeing. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessed and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. There's a lot of imagery there, right? You could read that and just skim it through and go, that's kind of a crazy scene, okay? And you'd be right, but there's so much to this. So let's get into this. Let's get into this, tear some of these scriptures apart, and really get a deeper understanding of what's happening here. So our first scripture, Revelation 5.1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, Okay, so verse 1, we're going to stop here and camp here for just a minute because there is a lot here that I think we need to have a firm grasp on. First of all, just very simply, I saw in the right hand. Okay, so the right hand, we've heard there are a lot of scriptures that talk about the right hand of God being the hand of blessing, okay? And we see that over and over again. But really, it goes all the way back to... Um, it goes all the way back to the Hebrew language of even the word for right and left. The word for right in Hebrew is yamin, and it means more skillful and powerful. Just literally the right hand, yamin, more skillful, powerful, versus the left hand, which is smol, which means dark or weak. So even in their language, right hand, left hand is significant. The right hand being that hand of blessing. This is why the scroll, or why the book in this case where it says, is in the right hand. Let's talk about, though, the, the book. That word book, okay, we see book as it's got a binding, it's got pages, much like the Bibles that many of you have right now. That's what a book is. That same word, though, translates meaning scroll. And in this case, this is what this is. This is a papyrus scroll. That's the writing material they had in the day. So this isn't a book with pages. This is a rolled-up scroll, now, written inside and on the back, that is significant also. Papyrus is, it's a natural material, and when you write on the front of it, it's see-through for the most part, okay? You hold it up to the sun especially, you see light coming through. If you write on the front and the back, it becomes very difficult to read. So traditionally, they would just write on 
the front side. No matter how long it was, if you needed more room, you would just have a longer scroll, right? But on the front and the back is significant because from time to time, when you had a scroll, you would write out a legal document, whether it was a will or a title deed or, or some sort of an important document. If there were addendums, additions, corrections, those things would go on the back, okay? So, because you couldn't erase, right? We didn't have now. We just, I'll just highlight, delete, and reinsert. You can't do that then. So they would write them on the back. That's where all the corrections, additions would be. It's significant here that it was written inside and on the back because that indicates fullness. It indicates there's nothing more that needs to be said. There's nothing that needs to be corrected. There's no room for anything else. This is complete and full in itself. And this actually echoes back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2, verses 9 and 10 Ezekiel says, then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me. Sound familiar? And lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. That's a prophetic vision that Ezekiel had all that time ago. So again, it was only typically written on the front side, this case, front and back, which Ezekiel may or may not have grasped the significance of that, but this is exactly what was happening. Now, what's on this scroll? What's in it? What's the scroll contain? There are entire studies I could teach for, for months on what the contents of the scroll is, and we'll see it as we go forward. We'll see what's in there, but one scholar, and I'll just, I love the way that he put this, so I'm just going to quote him he described the contents of the scroll like this. He says, The roll appears from the context to be the title deed of man's inheritance, redeemed by Christ, and it contains the successive steps by which he shall recover it from its thief and obtain final possession of the kingdom. I love the way that that's put. And we're going to go in as we go into the next chapters. We're definitely going to see how that unveils. Now, Sealed up with seven seals. This is extremely important too. Um, Roman custom was to, and again, important documents. We're talking deeds and wills and very important documents were sealed with seven seals. That was their tradition, okay, seven. Hebrews had the same tradition, although theirs were typically three seals. In fact, by law, it had to be sealed by three seals. And the more important it was, the more seals it would have. So if you got a document from a Hebrew and it had, you know, seven seals, you knew this was, this was an important document, much more and far above the usual. Now, we think of a scroll, and in fact, if you Google, what's a scroll with seven seals look like? 90% of them, what you're going to see is a scroll. We know what a scroll looks like, and it'll just have seven wax seals along it. You know those ones where you drop the wax and stamp it? Okay, but it'll be seven seals across the front of it. That is not what this was. The reason for the seven seals is progressive revelation. And what that means is you would get it, you would break the first seal, you would open it up to a certain point until you came to that second seal. And you would stop there. That first section then had a certain amount of information. You're either your first steps or the first paragraph or whatever it was, some information then and only then you would break that second seal, revealing then the next step. And it probably looked a lot like this. 
if you picture, as you broke the first seal on the far right, you could open it to a certain point, and then you would get to that second seal. Then you would stop, have to break that second seal, and then move on. This is the progressive revelation that we would see in these. It was meant to be read and, and absorbed in that manner. So this is probably more likely what it looked like. Not an actual image, by the way, just to be clear on that. This is not a photograph of that. This is, this is a rendering, but that's probably what it looked like. So, All right, so moving on, Revelation 5, 2. Next verse. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, this is one of those things where this is not, it's not um, significant to our theology to know who this angel is. Probably it was Gabriel. Because Gabriel, the name Gabriel literally means God is my strength or strength of God. So when he says a strong angel, chances are it was Gabriel. Again, not theologically significant, but I wanted to point that out to you. One thing to note, when it doesn't say, so it says a strong angel, but it doesn't give a name. There are other places in the Bible like, why didn't it name the place or the person or the thing? It doesn't do that because it's not important to our understanding of what's happening. Okay, So a lot of times things like that are omitted when it really is not critical to our understanding. But we can think about it sometimes and go, I'm betting, I'm guessing that that was probably Gabriel. And so in my study shows, that was probably Gabriel, but again, not not critically important to our understanding. Then moving on, Revelation 5, 3, 4. I'll just read this one to you. It says, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Clearly, he had an understanding of how significant this book or this scroll was. He knew that it needed to be opened, and there was no one Found worthy. Now, a couple things about this where it says in the heaven or, or earth or under the earth, a lot of us would tend to look at that and go, okay, he's talking about heaven, earth, and then hell or the dominion of Satan or underworld or something like that, right? You would divide it into that way. That's where our mind would go. That's not really what he's saying here, though. That phrase, heaven or earth or under earth, is just a common phrase that was used at the time to indicate the entire universe, everywhere. No one anywhere in the universe was able to do this. So that's what that phrase means. It's not literally an allusion to heaven, earth, and hell. But picture the scene here. All these people, these multitudes of angels worshiping, the elders sitting around with their crowns and their robes, angels, Gabriel, all these things happening, and it says no one was found worthy. That's significant because a lot of times we tend to elevate angels or elders to this point to where surely they're worthy. If you're surrounding the very throne room of God and you're wearing a white robe and a crown, surely you would be worthy to open this book, but no. There's only one that is found worthy to open this book. I think that's quite a scene there if we think about what's going on here. Revelation 5.5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So one of the elders, again, one of the 24 elders with the robes, the crown, turns, and he says, stop weeping. 
and he introduces to him the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Words that go back to Old Testament scripture, descriptions, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Okay, that goes all the way back to Genesis as a, as a name for the Messiah. The root of David, that goes all the way back at least to Isaiah as, as another name for the Messiah. So John has got to be, this elder is saying, behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And he's, he's like, almost like a drumroll introduction, right? He's waiting for this big reveal. This is going to be awesome when I see the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is overcome, and he is worthy with all this stuff that's going on. He's going to be the worthy one. What do you think John was expecting to see? It was probably pretty awesome, right? That's where my mind would go, oh, this is going to be cool. Okay, today we'd all be pulling our phones out and putting them on, on the move, right? He's got to be getting ready for this because it sounds amazing. But here's what he sees, Revelation 5, 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, that's the angels, and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He's expecting this amazing scene, and he turns and sees a lamb. The actual translation for that. Uh, for lamb, I just lost it. Um, a lamb as if slain is arnion, which literally in that, in that language means an innocent little lamb. An innocent, not even just a regular lamb. An innocent little lamb. Standing as if slain, meaning the wounds of the battles it has been through. The crucifixion of Christ were still evident on this lamb. This lamb was not the cuddly little fuzzy white toy that we see. It was beaten and it was bloody. But it had seven horns indicating power. Seven horns. Horns were the symbol of, of just power. And the more horns you had, the more powerful you were. Seven eyes, all seeing. So he's all powerful, all seeing. And he is powerful, but he doesn't look it. This is a word for us. We need to set aside sometimes what our expectation of God's glory and power looks like, especially how that manifests in the physical. Because here we have our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, manifesting here as an innocent little lamb, bloody and bruised and beaten. Not the all-conquering Messiah that we would expect with flashing sword and the lion, lion's teeth and vicious. Far more powerful than that. But visually, not what he expected to see. How many times do we walk past a blessing? Or worse yet, we find ourselves disappointed in what we're seeing because it doesn't look like what we thought. I think in some cases, John probably struggled with seeing himself in that way. But here he is in the presence of the elders and the angels and seeing all this. The elders, by the way, let me revisit that really quick. The elders, the 24 elders, where it says they're standing with, with robes, white robes, and with crowns. If you remember what I taught in one of the first couple weeks, that is a, is a, is a signifier of, of victory. 
the victors, those who persevere, will be given a crown. Remember that? So the, the white robe, the crown, that signifies victory. And so what that tells us, these elders are representatives of the church who are there. These are the representatives who have persevered. And there's actually a lot of debate on who these the 24 are. There are scholars that go back and forth because it doesn't ever say who these elders are. It just says they're elders. Some people think it's a representative of the 12 tribes of Judah and then multiplied by two to include Gentiles. Okay? There, there's a lot of different um, theories about what this are. Some say it represents the 12 apostles and then the 12 patriarchs from the Old Testament. So again, there's lots of debate on who they are, but this is one of those instances, like I told you, doesn't necessarily matter who they are. We know from their robes and their crowns, they're representatives of the church on earth who have persevered. And they are surrounding God and worshiping him in the very throne room. So this is, this is the scene again where we are. Revelation 5, 7, 8. Excuse me. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Again, I love it when it actually spells out some of this imagery so we don't have to guess what it is. The golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of the saints. Let's think about that for a second. Harp and golden bowls, okay? So he's talking about praise, praise music coming from stringed instruments. This is, this is the scene that's going on there in the, around the throne. And then bowls full of prayers as incense. That goes back to Psalm 141 that says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. So this is the scene we have there. When we praise God, do we think of our, the praise music and our praise with raised hands? Do we think of that as actually lifting up into the very throne room of God? I don't know about you, but that changes how I think about worshiping. Sometimes, sometimes I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm just not super into it at the moment. I'm distracted. I'm thinking something else, and I find myself just kind of standing there like this. That's not what I want. I want joyful praise. I want to make noise, whether it's joyful coming out of my mouth or not. God hears it that way. And I raise my hands in praise to him. Our prayers, your prayers are not just a, I'm just going to throw this out there and see if it sticks. Word says your prayers raise before him as incense. Fragrant incense in the very throne room of God. Does that change how you think about prayer and worship? It should, because it changes mine. Revelation 5, 9, 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Remember, every tribe and tongue literally means everyone. Okay? Specifically, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles together, meaning this is not just for one section of people. This is offered 
to everyone. And you will see people from all walks of life that are there in the throne room. You will see that. A kingdom and priests, that echoes back to Exodus. Exodus 19.6 says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First Peter actually echoes that. It says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God loves you so much that he has offered that to you. You are holy. You are a priest of God. And you will reign upon the earth. This is the inheritance that you have. This is the inheritance contained within these scrolls. And this is for all of us. Revelation 5.11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That word myriads just means beyond calculation. So again, picture that scene. Beyond calculation, times two, he's saying. And thousands of thousands of angels worshiping. This has got to be just, just an incredible scene of worship of our God. Revelation 5.12, they're all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now this, this type of structure, when you see it like this, this is called a doxology. You don't need to remember that for sure, but a doxology is basically it's made to be uh, either chanted or sung. Okay, so it says, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Notice how many different attributes of the lamb are listed there. There's seven. Power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. These are the attributes of our Messiah that are worthy of our praise. Worthy of our worship. These are, this is what this doxology means saying these not only are worthy of our praise, they demand our praise. Revelation 5, 13, 14. I'll just read this last part to you. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. Let's think about what our takeaway from this scripture is. What should we take away when we read chapter 5 and 4 if we go back and include, because they're kind of the same thing. What is our takeaway here? Why even was this put here? Do you think about that? Chapters 1 through 3 is talking about exhorting the churches to persevere here because you're going to go through some stuff. So I want to exhort you to persevere and to be better. Be as good as you can be. Then we see in chapter 6 on, we start opening this scroll. And we start looking at the individual seals and we have trumpets and things. And this is where judgment comes in. This is where it can kind of take a dark turn if you want to look at it like that. Why is this section 4-5 put in the middle? You ever think about that? 
Now, again, remember, this is, this is not just a random bunch of thoughts that they said, oh, let's just throw these chapters together and it doesn't mean anything. This is done very much for a reason. And I think the reason for it is because this glimpse into heaven, seeing our glorified Savior in his rightful place, gives us hope. As we go into looking at tribulation and judgment and trials and the things that are to come, we need to have a solid grasp on how great and how merciful and how worthy of our praise our God in heaven is. If you're going to go into something that you know is going to be bad, you've been foretold, this, it's going to get ugly. Isn't it critical that you have an understanding of the person leading you into this. The person that you can count on to be waiting there for you when you're through. So this section is put there so that we understand that through all of our failings, through all of our human weakness, through all of our mistakes, raise your hand if you haven't made a mistake yet today. Through all of that, we have the creator of the heavens and earth, the all-powerful, all-powerful God who can rain down lightning, who can bring thunder, and who can calm seas. He created everything that ever was and ever will be. He is that powerful. He is almighty God, and he loves you. And he knows you. And he knew what you were going to go through. And he loves you anyway. And he made a way all this time ago. It is critical that we understand the goodness and the mercy of God. Because when you're about to go through something, you better know you can trust what's on the other side. And so as I was looking on how to close up this message, I was praying like, Lord, where... How do I put an exclamation point on this? What do you want me to do? And he simply gave me a scripture. And I want to share this scripture with you before we go into our response time. This is Psalm, I'm just going to read it to you. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is nine verses. And it says, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set into place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims, the ocean currents. O oh Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. So our response to a message like this, we're going to mix it up just a little bit. The worship team is going to play a song here, and I want us to take this first song, and I want us to lift our hands to heaven. I want us to sing praise to God. 
I want us to lift up prayers as incense before God in the throne room. Let's take this first song. Before we start moving around to do communion or anything else, let's just take this to create a scene. Let's create a commotion in the throne, in the throne room. Let's create a scene that's going to catch his eye. He's going to say, look what's going on over here. Let's do that together. And the worship team is going to play on. After this first song, I'll come up and I'll introduce communion and dismiss us for that. Let's rise up and let's worship him together. Amen. I was talking to Weston before we got to uh, pray this morning. A lot of people on the, in the church have a hard time associating to God as a father because of maybe a poor earthly experience. But we all have friends and we can all experience God as our friend.
Let's declare this together. God Almighty, Lord of glory, you have called me friend. Just think about that. God. 